I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading through the Gospels, today we'll be looking at the following passages. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 40, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 34, and Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 40. Uh, Jesus is still in and around Jerusalem. These events take place in the week preceding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and they're a continuation of a teaching session that began back in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46, Mark 12, 1 through 12, and Luke 20, verses 9 through 19. In chapter 22, beginning with verse 1, we have Jesus speaking a parable to the listeners. Verse 1, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come into the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Well, the string of parables that began back in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, uh, Jesus is still at that session, and this is the third in that series, as a matter of fact. And Jesus had been asked by one of the chief priests previously, by what authority doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority? Well, the first two parables in reply are found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32, and then the second one, Matthew 21, 33 to 46. Those are designed to point out that these so-called leaders would not be comprising the coming kingdom of God on earth because of their rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now, this third parable in the series makes the very same point. The wedding setting here, uh, the wedding celebration sometimes lasts as long as a week. This wedding setting is a picture of the kingdom of God on earth that Jesus has been proclaiming in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. It's obvious here that those who were initially invited to the wedding are analogous to these Jewish leaders. 
Just like the original guests declined to attend the wedding, these leaders who questioned Jesus' authority, well, they're declining to be a part of any kingdom in which Jesus is the head. Interestingly, this parable offers them a second chance to reconsider. They again decline, not only so, but they treat the messengers with absolute contempt. Yup, we're still drawing an analogy to these wicked Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. So who ends up coming to the wedding? Well, it's just plain common folks who attend. Likewise, Jesus reaches beyond the Jewish leadership of his day, and he extends an invitation for the common people to receive the message of the kingdom of God on earth. You'll notice also that those who decline the invitation are destroyed in verse 7. Now, this parable has a little bit of a twist. One man manages to get into the wedding who doesn't belong there. At the end of the tribulation, the kingdom of God on earth will begin with only those who have come out of the tribulation with a believing relationship in Jesus Christ. No impostors will be allowed. The earth will begin the millennium, also known as the wedding feast, with only invited guests being those who trusted God by faith during the tribulation. Likewise, the party crasher is not permitted to participate because he was not an invited guest. Incidentally, here we see an oft-misused verse in verse 14. It says, For many are called, but few are chosen. As you can see, the actual context of this verse indicates that while many are invited to participate in the kingdom of God on earth, we know now that it's going to be the millennium, only those chosen to be there and who have complied with the Messiah's criteria, only those people will be permitted to be a part of that kingdom. Now, the wedding supper scenario was used by Jesus to describe the millennium also when we get over to Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. In that Matthew 25 analogy, we once again see that those who do not belong there well, we see that in an expanded scenario in verses 1 through 13 of Matthew chapter 25. The party crashers, so to speak, are then described in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. But there we find out more about their identity. They are Gentiles who rejected the gospel message spread by the witnesses during the tribulation leading up to the millennium. Rather than being granted access to the millennium, also known as, in that passage, the wedding feast, they're banished when it is said in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Then we see in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now, incidentally, under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, I have a an article entitled Guide to Prophetic Scripture. Uh, you may want to look that over and see the verses that are involved in a good study of prophecy. Now, in the next section, we're going to talk about the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. And I do have a copy of uh, the article included in Easton Bible Dictionary, which describes the Pharisees, how they differentiate themselves from the Sadducees, and then lastly, the Herodians. You may want to take a look at that under the written notes of BibleTrack.org. Now, the uh, Pharisees, by the way, were separatists. They uh, 
uh, were very much keepers of the law and believed in the supernatural, whereby the Sadducees, that was the uh, sect of the priests, they didn't believe in the supernatural, uh, yet they controlled the priesthood. And the Herodians, they were sort of like the Sadducees, but they complied and, um, and, and found themselves very much in compliance with Rome. In Matthew chapter 22, we find the Pharisees trying to entrap Jesus, and they get some assistance from the uh, Herodians in this passage. Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22, the parallel passage being Mark 12, 13 through 17, and then finally Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. First, let's look at Matthew 22, 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth, neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Same incident now from Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. And they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it, and he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now over to Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 20. And they watched him and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him into the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly. Neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny, whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. So the Pharisees at this point call in some reinforcements against Jesus, the Herodians, who just happen to be their political adversaries. These pro-Roman Herodians take their shot at Jesus. 
There is nothing whatsoever sincere about those who come to Jesus on this occasion in the temple. These Herodians were like Sadducees, but with a compliant attitude toward Roman domination of Israel. They have very little in common with the Pharisees except for, well, extreme hypocrisy. That being the case, what's the deal with the Pharisee-slash-Herodian collusion here? I mean, what is this in this passage against Jesus? Well, Luke is quite clear regarding their intentions on this occasion when he says in verse 20, And they watched him and sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words, and so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. The phrase, feign themselves just men, means that they portrayed themselves as righteous. Righteous? you got to be kidding me. It's very obvious that the Pharisees would make a deal with the devil himself if it would help them get rid of Jesus. Now, since the Herodians were very loyal to Rome, they're the perfect hitmen for this job. I mean, so much so that they are the people to get Jesus to publicly renounce Rome and Roman rule. If Jesus were actually to renounce Rome, then the Jewish leaders can have him arrested by the Romans on charges of treason. If he does not renounce Roman rule, they speculate that the people will turn away from him as Messiah. The Messiah, they conjecture, would surely express a disdain for Roman rule. Jesus outsmarts them, though. He gives them an answer that they just didn't see coming. Well, of course he did. He had supernatural perceptive powers. As Jesus holds a Roman coin up, he says this, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. The scripture tells us that they marveled at that answer. But of course, they were disappointed that their ploy had failed. Next up, the Sadducees. It's their turn to take a verbal swing at Jesus. We find this in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33, paralleled by Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27, and Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. First of all, Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 23. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Now the same occasion from Mark's perspective in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 18. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, and they ask him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die, and leave his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. 
Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Now over to Luke chapter 20, verse 27. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her to wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that they durst not ask him any question at all. Well, in this passage, these three passages, we see that here come the Sadducees to take their turn at attempting, I say attempting, to humiliate Jesus before the people while he's teaching in the temple. Now, these Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Well, among other scriptural truths, they had also rejected. It's interesting, though, that they controlled the priesthood. The high priest was always chosen from among the Sadducees during this period. I'm confident they used this hypothetical illustration of theirs quite often to show what they considered the fallacy of the resurrection doctrine. They based their illustration upon the provision for widows who had not yet born children found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, part of the law. These marriages are referred to in Hebrew culture as leveret marriages. This woman, the hypothetical woman, she survives seven, count them, seven husbands. Watch out for her cooking. Although they claim in Matthew chapter 22, verse 25, that the story is true, I'm just not buying it. To me, the bigger question should have been, how bad can one woman's cooking be? In my opinion, only the Son of God could hold a straight face while they go through this ridiculous scenario. 
Nevertheless, in their minds, Jesus must reject the doctrine of the resurrection, which will once and for all put him at odds with the Pharisees. Well, instead, Jesus tells all of them something they didn't know about heaven. People don't get married there. It's easy to overlook, but notice in Luke's account in verse 39, Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. Now, these were the professional copyists and students of the law. And they were impressed. Now, Jesus makes another point here which strikes at the heart of the Sadducees' belief system when he quotes God speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Here's what he says. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, follow closely here. Here it is. Since the Sadducees only respected the law of Moses and rejected the resurrection... The phrase, I am the God, present tense, uh, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 there, the phrase, I am the God, well, that accentuated an inconsistency in their doctrine of no resurrection. In other words, God tells Moses that he is, not was, but he is the God of those who had already passed from mortal life to eternal life, as in the resurrection. So, He is the God of the people who are both living as well as those who've died and are to be resurrected. In the next section of Scripture, only Matthew and Mark weigh in on this one. And the question is asked regarding the commandments. Is one commandment greater than the rest? We find this discussion in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, and Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. First Matthew 22, beginning with verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now over to Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 28, uh, a more expanded rendition of the same occasion. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, and no man after that durst ask him any question. Not wanting to be outdone in this duel with Jesus, the Pharisees appoint one of their own scribes and a lawyer to ask Jesus a question. Here's the question. Which is the great commandment in the law? Well, that seems like a pretty lame attempt to stump Jesus. 
I mean, observant Jews then and now quote several times a day Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. This passage is part of what is known to Jews today, and well back then as the Shema. If you'd like to see a discussion of exactly what the Shema is, then check the written notes on Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now notice the reply that Jesus gives in verses 37 through 40. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's right. If you want to summarize the law of Moses, here it is boiled down to just two action items. Number one, love for God, and number two, love for one another. Now, in Mark's account, in verses 32 to 34, we found something additional that's interesting here. It appears that the scribe who asked the question is impressed, and Jesus recognizes his softened attitude toward the kingdom message when he says to him in verse 34, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.